Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. chapter 27. Switch back to this microphone. Acts chapter 27. The title of today's message is The Ship is Doomed, But You Can Be Saved. And we're going to be reading about Paul's shipwreck. It's just a wonderful story in and of itself. It's the kind of story that I haven't ever seen one, but I don't know why. It would be it's always Jonah and the whale for those children's books, but it would be an awesome um, children's book story, you know, with pictures to show the things that are happening here. It's just a great story in and of itself. But there's a really strong spiritual meaning to this story concerning the salvation of our families and the salvation of the world that, that we live in. And so, as we open up Acts chapter 27, I want us to really be listening to the Holy Spirit and what He's speaking through these things. Even the little details of this story, as I've told you many times in the book of Acts, these things aren't written just so they'll be interesting for us. Uh, They're written because this is the Word of God, and everything has a meaning to it. And if we listen to the Holy Spirit, there are things that He wants to speak to us through this story, and it's very easy to see ourselves and our church and the country we live in, the culture we live in, the world that we live in, in this story here in Acts chapter 27. Acts 27 is an illustration of the faithfulness of the church to our call. If we remain faithful, if we remain steady, if we remain steadfast and firm in the call of God on our lives and how that can bring salvation to the world around us. Um, it's an illustration of the power of repentance in the life of one man or one woman when they turn to God with all their hearts. There's one man in this story, his name is Julius, and we'll see him here this morning, who really repents in the story. And his heart is turned toward God because of the testimony of Paul, and it brings salvation to everyone on the ship. And it's an illustration, an an illustration of the salvation that comes to everyone who stays in our boat. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is like Noah's Ark. The only salvation that can be is for us to be in that boat. And when I say the church, I don't mean just a denomination or you're a church member, your name is on the roll somewhere, or you say, yes, I'm a Christian. Well, I was born in America, so of course I'm a Christian or something like that. But really being a part of the body of Christ. The further we've distanced ourselves away from the body of Christ, the more danger we are uh, of, of sinking and being destroyed. And the closer we join ourselves to the body of Christ, And we join ourselves to the Lord Jesus and to his church because Jesus is the one that said it. Not some pastor. Well, he's a pastor, but he's the chief pastor. He's the one that said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So if the gates of hell are prevailing against our culture, and they are, if they're prevailing against our country, and they are, then I'm telling you the only safe place to be is in the boat. The safe place to be is to be in the church. So we're going to be looking at those things today, and we're just going to break it up into different sections, and um, I'm just giving you fair warning, we're going to read the whole chapter, but it shouldn't take us too terribly long, but we need to read this story in its entirety, and I want to begin with a word of prayer. Father, we come before you this morning, and I just thank you for your word, I thank you for this story. I thank you for the things that you are speaking to us this morning through your word. I pray that you would open our hearts, Lord, as we open our hearts, that you would open them even wider and prepare our hearts and our, the ear, our spiritual ear that's on the inside of us to hear what the Spirit is speaking to the church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going to begin with chapter 27. I want to read verses 1 through 8. So you just read together with me. When it was decided, remember that uh, Paul just had his 
uh, audience with Agrippa and Bernice. We went over all that last week. So he's gone through all these things, and he has appealed to Caesar. So he's on his way to Rome now in chapter 27. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, notice the word we, now Luke is back as a first, uh, with, a, with a firsthand uh, a record of what's happening. He's an eyewitness of what's happening. He's a part of this group. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, then they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in an Adramithian ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, and if you have one of those little maps in the back of your Bible, you can flip over there and see this drawing of you know, the route to, to, to Rome. Uh, we put out to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. From there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Calicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion, Julius, found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. When we had sailed slowly for a good many days, and with difficulty had arrived off Cnidus, notice that uh, the winds are contrary, they're sailing with difficulty, and they're going very slow. Uh, since the wind did not permit us to go farther, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmone. And with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. So I want to unpack these first eight verses just a little bit. I want to begin by drawing your attention to the fact that there are two ships in this story. We've already encountered two different ships. Just a little detail, but it's there. They're on the first ship, and then they, they change to another ship. So there are two ships which signify two legs of the journey. The ships, they are populated by four companies of people. The first group of people are the sailors, just try to imagine this, you've watched lots of Hollywood movies where you see these kinds of things, but the sailors who are there with a captain, and the captain is more literally from the Greek, the helmsman or the pilot, he's the captain of the ship, he's actually sailing the ship with the sailors, and then there's the ship master that in the New American Standard is called the captain, but he's actually the owner of the ship, okay? So you've got the sailors with their captain and the shipmaster. That's one group. The second group are the Roman guards, and these are not just any guards. These are guards of one of the most, or of the most elite cohort that was stationed in Caesarea, the Augustan cohort named after the emperor. So this is the emperor's personal guard that's stationed in uh, Caesarea. These are the best of the best of the guards and they are commanded by a centurion, and his name is Julius. Then the third group is you have assorted prisoners, all of them being sent to Rome. So prisoners in transport to Rome mean that they are accused of capital crimes. So you have murderers, you've got you know, thieves, different people that could be put to death by execution, and probably many of them were important people that were accused of capital crimes because they're all being sent to Rome. Their case has been appealed uh, to Caesar. And then you have a fourth group, and that's the Christians. And the Christians are a completely different group. They're not a part of the prisoners, really, and you'll see that in this story. We are a completely different people. We are separated from this world. It's what the very word church, ecclesia, means. We are called out from this world, and we are separate from this world, and we need to see ourselves that way. So the first ship, there's two ships. The first ship is successfully navigated by the skill of the sailors, and it's not easy navigation, but they are very skillful, uh, skillful sailors, and we know this because they wouldn't put just some lousy sailors to run the ship that had the Augustan cohort on it. These are the best of the best coming from Caesarea. They know their ship, and they know how to make it through these winds and through these storms. That's very important to the, to the story. 
They have a great deal of skill, and they've successfully navigated the first ship through troubled waters and gotten to their destination. Then they, ship to a, they change over to a second ship. And when they get on the second ship, the weather gets even worse. But with their own skill, they're able to successfully navigate that ship to a place called Fair Havens. Okay? I don't think it's any mistake that the place is called Fair Havens because there's going to be instilled in them a false uh, sense of security, a false confidence in their own skill. And it's going to lead to their destruction, their possible destruction, and yet salvation comes only because of the fourth group, because of the Christians who are on the boat. It's very much like the world that we live in today. They come to this place called Fair Havens. A storm is coming, we're going to see that now, a storm that goes beyond their skill, which will completely cause them to lose hope. They will not be able to sail through that storm. A storm that they've never met before in the history of their sailing. Something they're utterly unprepared for because it's beyond their control. Here's the thing about the wind and the storms. You know, uh, I, I actually was out of town when it happened. I came home, my whole house is covered with spider webs. Like thousands of spiders were splattered on my house and dirt everywhere. And my neighbor Jim said, you just couldn't even see. You wouldn't believe the sandstorm going around this neighborhood. I was like, well, I'm glad I wasn't here. But here's the thing about a storm is you don't have any control over it. There's absolutely nothing you can do about it, right? And the weather forecast isn't always right. And what you think is going to happen doesn't always happen. So there's going to be a storm that they are not prepared for. Now let's talk about Aristarchus, because it mentions a guy by the name of Aristarchus from Thessalonica. Well, he's actually mentioned in chapter 19, verse 29. I'm not going to go back and look this up right now, but we read about him. He risked his own life to save Paul when they were in Ephesus. And he came to the Lord, and not only came to the Lord, but risked his life for Paul, so he's joined Paul's ministry team. And then we know that Luke is there because he uses the pronoun we. Okay? He says, when it was decided that we would sail. So we know that Paul's ministry team is there with him on the boat. And this has been allowed, if you'll remember, by uh, Festus. And it's been uh, allowed uh, because they have favor. Paul's found favor with these people. They just don't know what to do with him, so they're sending him to Rome. <clears throat> As we go forward in this story, we'll see that the salvation of every person's life on that boat is going to depend on how they treat the Christians. Jesus says that when he returns, when the Son of Man comes, he will sit upon his judgment seat to judge the nations of the world. And he will call them to himself, and he will separate them as the sheep are separated from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left hand. And if you remember this from Matthew 25, the criteria for judging whether they are sheep nations or goat nations is how they treated the least of these my brethren, Jesus will say. Don't think that it's a small thing how people treat the people of God. How they treat the family of God and the children of God is a determination, a criteria for Christ's judgment of them in his coming. In Mark chapter 9, verse 41, Mark 9, 41, it's that Jesus said, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, whoever gives you just an insignificant cup of water to drink on a hot day and, and does that because you're a Christian, because you're a follower of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. The blessings that come when you bless the people of God. The blessings that come to a nation when they bless the Jews. The curses that come to a nation when they don't bless the Jews. When they curse the Jews. But there's the same blessings that come to a nation when they bless the church. Or to a city or to a community. When they bless the church. How they treat the people of God. And that's what will determine the salvation of everyone on this boat. Now I want you to notice that from the very beginning, Julius the centurion, his heart is open to Paul. 
the Holy Spirit is moving on his heart. Paul has no way to control what this boat is going to do. Okay? He's not the captain, he's not the owner, he's not a centurion, and he's under arrest. Right? But we'll see that the outcome, which is salvation, the outcome is determined by Paul's faithfulness to the call of God and to his prayers for the salvation of everyone on the boat. But Julius senses something in his heart from the beginning. Remember, Julius, even though he's not the owner of the ship, and even though he's not the captain, he's the guy with the sword, right? So he's really the person who's going to make the decisions on this ship. And from the beginning, the Holy Spirit has his heart open to Paul. So they come to Sidon, and Sidon, if you look on one of your maps, is modern-day Lebanon. It's just to the north of Caesarea, just to the north of Israel, and it's their first stop. Their first stop, they haven't even gone very far. And at the very beginning of the journey, at their first port of call, what does uh, Julius do? Paul's found so much favor with him, and the Holy Spirit so moved on Julius's heart already, that he actually lets Paul off the boat. He lets him get off the ship and go to the Christians in Sidon. And they minister to him. And we'll see later that they actually give him food and they give him stuff for the journey, and they get him all set up for the journey, and Julius allows that. So let's look at verse 9. Verse 9, out of the frying pan and into the fire. When considerable time had passed, so they're at Fair Havens, and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo in the ship, but also of our lives. How often has the church preached that and nobody listens? But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. Because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision, that's always scary, to put out to sea from there when the majority makes the decision, if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. When a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete, close in shore. So, this is the moment when they literally come out of the frying pan and into the fire, where it says that the fast was already upon them. That is the day Yom Kippur. And by the way, we're going to be uh, I'm going to be ministering on those days when we uh, get closer to them when they come. With the fast, Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. So this is October. And where they're sailing, Luke is telling us something that everyone who's reading this at that time would know. That October is when the winter winds begin to prevail and sailing became very risky. Okay, When the weather is turning and the winter winds begin to prevail. And so Paul admonishes them, it says. The word admonish here is a different word than is used anywhere else in the New Testament. And it's used twice and only twice in the New Testament in this story, right here and in verse 22. In verse 22, it's going to say that Paul urges them. Here it says that he admonishes them. And the thing that's interesting about this word is it means to admonish or to urge. It means to give advice, but it has this little addition to it. It means to do it publicly. This is really important. Paul doesn't go privately to Julius or to the ship, you know, I really feel like this is, you know, he's so bold and confident in what he sees, what he perceives by the Holy Spirit, that he does it publicly. So he forces their hand. They have to make a public decision because he spoke it, because he preached it out publicly. Now they can't say we did not know. They have to hear. All these things have great spiritual significance. Paul says, I perceive. Now, that's an interesting thing. He does not say, later he's going to say, an angel told me. In the previous chapter, he said, uh, Jesus stood by my side and told me. There's a lot of ways the Holy Spirit can speak to you. But do you know the most common ways that the Holy Spirit speaks to you is this, I perceive. You don't get some special revelation from heaven. You don't need a gift of the Spirit. You just have wisdom from God because you live in the Word of God. And that inner voice, that still small voice on the inside, you just, you know, sometimes you say, uh, I just have a check in my spirit. That's probably how most people would say it today. 
I just got a red light going off in my spirit. You know, Paul's just saying, I perceive something's just wrong here. You should not discount that something's just wrong here feeling if you're truly living in the Word of God, you know, and if you're a part of the body of Christ. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to you, okay? And when something's wrong, you maybe don't know what's wrong, but just stop and figure out what's wrong because you've got a check in your spirit. You've got a red light going off in there. So he says, I perceive. This is the logic and the wisdom of a man of God. And here's basically what Paul's saying. He's saying the stakes are very low if we stay here. We have to winter somewhere anyway. Everybody, every one of them knew we can't just sail to Rome right now. We have to park the boat somewhere and wait till winter's over. We're going to be here for a few months. So the stakes are really low. We can stay here. But if we leave, the risks are really, really high. So he's just making a logical decision, wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit because he's a man of God, because he lives in the Word of God. And he speaks this out publicly to them. And we see that although Julius favors Paul in his heart, with his mind, there's a difference between the heart and the mind. Julius decides, no, I think I need to listen to the experts, right? I think I need to follow the science. So Julius decides to listen to the experts, follow the science, and not listen to the man of God. And when he turns to the experts, because they're so filled with confidence, they are actually great sailors. And they've just passed through a terrible storm and successfully navigated that ship to this place. And they have confidence in their ability. And so they take a vote. Okay, we'll put it to a vote. And the majority, some of them must have been in the minority, but the majority of the sailors and the soldiers decide we're going to go on because it's not convenient for us to winter here. And that's an interesting point. It says that the Fair Havens, even though it's called Fair Havens, was not suitable for them to winter. Well, the word not suitable actually means inconvenient. In the Greek, it's inconvenient. It was inconvenient for them. It was a safe place for the ship. Nothing bad was going to happen to the ship. But it was not a comfortable or convenient place for the sailors and soldiers. Maybe they didn't have all the taverns and pubs that they wanted to go to there. Maybe they didn't have the brothel there that they wanted to go to. I mean, excuse me, but I mean, these are sailors, you know. This isn't a place we want to spend winter. This isn't our favorite restaurants here. This isn't even a comfortable place. And they don't even have any good hotels here. This is inconvenient, so we want to move on. The majority of them chose to exchange the security of their lives and their freedom to exchange that for the comfort and convenience that they crave. We have been duped as a nation, and it continues on, and it's been going on for years to exchange our freedom for convenience and comfort. I mean, I, I don't know, sorry if, if this offends anybody. I mean, I use the internet all the time, but I realize that the internet uh, turned out to be, and social media and all that stuff, smartphones, it turned out not to make us smarter smartphones. It turned out they make us stupider. I can't even remember stuff anymore. I got to Google that. When I used to, I remembered it. You know, it just makes us stupider. And the technology doesn't really free us up with more time, does it? It just makes us more a slave to the technology. You know, and we've exchanged our security and exchanged our freedom for the comforts and the conveniences that are offered to us. So that's actually what these sailors are doing. There's a lot in this story that speaks to where we are today. Um, you know, I mean, after all, if they had to live in squalor and in bad conditions, they would have been lowered to the level of the prisoners they kept on that boat. You see, the prisoners were always living in bad conditions. And they didn't get a vote anyway. They just had to do whatever the sailors and the soldiers told them to do. But they were always living in bad conditions. They would have been fine to stay at Fair Havens. Paul knew how to be without. He knew how to fast. He knew how to have a lot of things, and he knew how to have nothing. And he's fine with staying in Fair Havens. He doesn't need a fancy restaurant. He just wants to live and get to Rome because that's where Jesus is sending him. Okay? And the sailors, they don't want to be lowered to the level of the prisoners. So they say, no, we, we won't stay there. They should have 
chosen the lesser of two evils, as we call it. Because staying in fair havens wasn't convenient, but it's the lesser of the two evils. But instead, they chose to trust their own skill against the storms that were coming. But they didn't know how bad of a storm was coming. In 1 Chronicles chapter 21, and in verse 10, in the story of where uh, David uh, numbered the people of Israel, he had a census, and it was against the will of God, and God sent the prophet to him and said that you're going to be judged for this. You're going to be punished for this. You are definitely getting a very hard spanking for what you've done, David. And the Lord says through the prophet, I offer you three things. Choose for yourself one of them. Which will I do to you? I'll offer you three possible punishments, and you can pick which one you want. Take for yourself either three years of famine or three months to be swept away before your foes or else three days of the sword of the Lord, even pestilence in the land. So you're either going to have famine for three years and you, O king, you know, this is kind of in parentheses, won't have famine because kings never have famine. But your people are going to have famine for three years. Or you're going to get three months of your enemies beating you in battle. Okay, and a lot of people are going to die. Or you're going to get three days of a microscopic pestilence that you can't even see, that you can't control, you can't stop, and you don't have any medicine for it, but it's only going to be three days, and it's just going to wipe through the camp. You're all going to get sick. It's going to be called the sword of the Lord. And David said, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are very great. David chose what seemed to be the greatest evil of all, but he chose it because he knew if it's the sword of the Lord, God's going to have mercy on us. He's not going to let us get wiped out by this disease. He will heal us and he will protect us. And he threw himself on the mercy of the court, so to speak. He threw himself on the mercies of the Lord. And you know the Lord was just rejoicing over that because the whole story ends up with him taking possession of Mount Zion and the Temple Mount where the temple is going to be built. It's really an amazing story. But these people did not do that. They did not trust the Lord, and they did not put themselves at the mercy of the Lord, at the hands of the Lord. They trusted in their own selves. I want to give you a piece of advice that the Lord gave to me as I was reading this and preparing this. It says in verse 13, when a moderate south wind came up, This is what the Lord spoke to me. Never trust a moderate south wind. (laughs) Trust the word of the Lord. This moderate south wind, see the winter winds are north winds. And here came a little patch of nice weather suddenly. And it lured them into a false sense of security. Because pride plus complacency always leads to destruction. It always leads to a fall. So look at me at... Verse 14, and we'll read about Yevrakilo, which is a powerful wind. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Yevrakilo. And when the ship was caught in it, <coughs> excuse me, and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. And running under the shelter of a small island called Klavda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. I'll explain these little details to you in a minute. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables and undergirding the ship, and fearing that they might run aground in the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor and in this way let themselves be driven along. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, notice how Luke switches from we to they. We are all suffering from this on the boat, but they are the ones making the stupid decisions. They are the ones that did wrong. He doesn't say, oh, that was our decision. We didn't vote for this. You know, don't blame us for this, but we're all suffering together in the boat. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. So a Yevrakilo, it's a powerful northeast tempest. It's not written of just in the Bible. It's written of in classical literature also. 
It's something that everybody knew about. It could happen, but these sailors had never encountered one like this. So it's a northeast tempest that blows down from the land, a winter wind. And it's blowing across Crete, this big island, and picks up speed, and then it just hits them because it's come down from the entire European continent. And they can't handle it. They don't know what to do. And so what do we have? We have, first of all, extreme measures. I want you to notice the order of how everything falls apart. The first step are last-ditch efforts, extreme measures. We have a lot of those things happening in our country and in our world today. We can fix this. We can save this. We can change this. We can build it back better, sorry. But we, <coughs> we can take care of these things. So they take extreme measures. It says they take the ship's boat, okay? The ship's boat is a skiff. It's a small boat like a lifeboat, but it wasn't really designed to be a lifeboat. It was designed for them when they came up to a, a, a piece of land, they could get into that skiff and then row up there and find out you know, the depth of the water and safely make a landing. It was designed for safe uh, landing. And every ship had a skiff. And they actually would tow that skiff behind the ship. So it was being towed behind the ship. So when they bring it on board, that means that they realize that we're going to lose that and then we'll have no way to get to, for a safe landing. Because under normal circumstances, even in a storm, they would never bring this thing on board. So it's a really bad storm. So they had to bring the skiff on board. Then they had to undergird the ship itself. And they would use heavy ropes and undergird the ship with these ropes because they feared that the ship is going to be uh, broken to pieces, that the boards are all going to come about. So they undergird the ship so that it won't fall apart. And then they let out drift anchors. They lowered drift anchors in an attempt. To, it's like they put the brakes on. They're attempting to slow down the speed of the ship, okay, by putting out these drift anchors. Of course, they've already got the sails down. You know, that's not an extreme measure. That would have happened in any storm. But in this storm, they know they have to ride the storm out, as we say. But they've put the drift anchors down to try to break things, uh, to put, you know, to slow things down. So they've still got their heads. They're still making announcements to everything. Everything's going to be okay. This isn't really a recession or whatever they were saying. So sorry for that again. But... And then the next thing that happens, the second stage of this, first it starts with extreme measures, then it goes to panic. They go into panic mode. Their skill fails. And when their skill fails, they don't know what to do anymore. And they go into panic mode, and they actually jettison the cargo, it says. And in the morning, they rush out, and they throw off the ship's tackle with their own hands. That's like you pulled off the steering wheel, from your car and threw it out the window with your own hands. What does that mean? You don't think you're ever going to be able to steer this car again, right? Or you wouldn't have thrown that out with your own hands. They do not believe that this ship will ever be navigable again. They believe that this ship is going to be destroyed. Now they go out, it actually shows us they go out early in the morning to do this. Luke saw it. Paul sees it. They know what's happening. They don't probably want everybody to see them doing this. They don't probably want the soldiers to know they're doing this. But they've got to lighten the load. So they even throw overboard with their own hands the most essential equipment for the ship to be navigable, uh, to be saleable. Okay? So they're in panic mode. No one of them expects the ship will ever be saleable again. And then the next thing is darkness and confusion comes upon them. And it says gradually. It doesn't happen immediately, but over a period of many days, they finally abandon all hope of being saved. And it tells us why. Because they're enveloped in darkness. During the daytime, they don't see the sun. During the nighttime, they don't see stars. And when a sailor does not see the sun and does not see stars and his ship is spinning around in circles, he's utterly lost. They're completely confused. They don't have GPS equipment, you know. They're lost. They're confused. They don't know where they are. And this has never happened to these sailors before in their lives. These are the best sailors in Caesarea. And suddenly they're in a position where they have no idea where they are located, 
what they are doing, and utter confusion comes upon them because God allows darkness to come upon them, thick darkness that they cannot see through. So we go from last-ditch efforts to panic to darkness and confusion. Look at me at verse 21. This is where things change. Verse 21, it says, when they had gone a long time without food. So I don't know how long that is, but that's a long time. Then Paul stood up in their midst and said, don't think they were feeding the prisoners. Everybody's going without food. Men, I love this. You know, it's okay to do the I told you so thing when the Holy Spirit gives it to you. Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet even now, I urge you, that's that public admonishment, I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. He's telling them something that seems utterly impossible to their minds. But he believes it. For this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you, that's very important, has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. But when the 14th night came, so two more weeks goes by after he makes that statement. As we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, that means they're just going around in circles. They still don't know where they are. About midnight, it's about because nobody knows what time it is exactly. About midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. They took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And a little farther on, they took another sounding and found it to be 15 fathoms. Now they're freaking out. They're about to crash. Fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. Oh, please let the sun come out. But as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat, that's that skiff they brought on board, now they're trying to escape in it, into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion, Julius, and to the soldiers, unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff, of the ship's boat, and let it fall away. This is a really powerful change. And it reveals to us the power of a church, the power of Christians who intercede before God for the lives of everyone in their boat. You need to understand this morning that there are way more people in your boat than you even imagine. There are more people in your house than you even imagine. The Greek word that's used in the scripture for home or house is ekos. And in your ekos, there are many people that you don't even recognize or notice. There are so many more people in the boat of this church than you even imagine. There are so many people that if, they, if push came to shove, this is where they're going to come for salvation. This is where they're going to look for help. And they're going to be coming to you. And they're going to be looking for help. And they don't go to church. And maybe they don't even profess Christ as their Savior, but they're going to give you a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. And because you're a Christian, don't reject them and don't turn them away. Jesus said that in that day, there will be many people coming from nations all over the world that will sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. People you do not expect. Jesus said that I have sheep that you don't even know about. My flock is way bigger than you think. Don't think Jesus is on the losing side. Don't think just because uh, it looks like we're in retreat that Jesus is, is panicking and he's on the losing side. You know, Jesus is the greatest strategist in the world. And the devil's never pulled anything over on him. And he's not going to pull anything over on him. So we stand with Jesus. We listen to what the Lord has revealed to us, what the Lord told to Paul through an angel that night. Why did God send an angel? Why didn't Jesus himself come? I mean, in the chapter before, Jesus came. I don't know, and it doesn't matter. God brings his wisdom to us in many different ways. We've seen uh, different kinds of revelations that Paul gets. But it doesn't matter what kind it is. What matters is that it's a revelation from God, and Paul believes it. 
I mean, Paul is nuts when you think of I mean, this is absolutely illogical. He believes that if everybody stays in the boat, the, the, the ship, the ship will be destroyed and everything will be lost, but not one single human being will die. They'll all be saved. It makes no sense. We're going to see in a minute, they don't even all know how to swim. Some of them have chains on their arms, right? They're, they're prisoners. But he believes this. Why? Because that's what God told him. And if God said it, that's all I need to know. And so they begin to pray. They begin to pray. The Christians begin to pray. We know that they begin to pray. You know, it says that the panic level of the sailors and soldiers was so high that they had not even eaten in many days. And at least two weeks goes by with them not even eating. That's a really serious fast. Why are they not eating? I don't know. Part of, you know, panic doesn't have any logic to it. You would think that they need their strength to fight the storm. But panic has no logic to it. They're, they've thrown off all the equipment. They've thrown off all the cargo. They probably accidentally threw off all the food. Weren't even thinking about what they were doing. Does it seem like people are in that mode today? Does it seem like people have just gone nuts? Like they're making decisions that make no sense at all? I mean, talking about in the government and places like that. This is where we live today. It's a panic mode that, that the world is has gone into, but the Christians don't panic. So the Christians, they're fasting and praying. Them not eating, well, we're not getting anything to eat. Let's just call a fast then. Since there's nothing to eat anyway, let's turn it into something spiritual. And they begin to pray. And they're praying for the salvation of their household. They're praying for the salvation of their ecos. They're praying for the salvation of every person on the ship. How do I know that? Because the angel says, behold, God has granted you, Paul, all those who are sailing with you. So if God granted those people to Paul, it's because Paul asked for those people. Paul doesn't have any way to, to get them saved. He doesn't have any way to control that situation. He's already given them the word of God and they rejected it. He could have just sat in his corner and started praying, God, I pray that this ship will sink and that Luke and Aristarchus and my team, we will all be saved. Wouldn't that have been a better prayer? So it, to me, it seems like a better prayer. But you know what's wrong with that prayer? He'll never get to Caesar. Remember, the whole goal is I've got to get to Caesar. Paul said, he's gonna, or God said, he's going to send me to Caesar. How is he going to get, let's say the ship sank, and Paul and all of his Christian buddies ended up on this beautiful tropical island, you know, like Gilligan's Island or something, and they were just like, you know, they were able just to live there for years to come and make their little Christian retreat center there. It would be awesome, wouldn't it? And, and, and it would just turn out great. But you know what? He would never get to Caesar. And that, it, that's what he's all about. I'm going to do the will of God. I'm going to stand before Caesar. I don't care about escaping from jail I don't care about living on a tropical island. I was perfectly happy to sit in fair havens where everything's lousy and uncomfortable. But what I'm not okay with is not doing the will of God. What God's told me to do, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go to Caesar. So he's not praying for just his salvation. The only way for him to get to Caesar is for everybody to be saved. The only way for God's will to be fulfilled is for the whole household to be saved, the whole ship to be saved. So that's what he's praying for. He's fasting. He's praying. A couple of weeks has, have gone by, and at night an angel comes to him and says, this is how it's going to be work, work out. It says, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Notice the word must. The word must is what we usually call destiny or fate, neither one of which are really Christian words. I like the word destiny, fate, not so much, but... But really, what it is, is it's the sovereign will of God. God's sovereignty. This is going to happen. You must stand before Caesar. I found this little quote when I was praying about this. It's from Charles Spurgeon, famous preacher if you don't know who, who he was. And he said, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. Paul just lays down and goes to sleep. 
I'm going to get to Caesar. Nothing. It's like Jesus asleep in the boat in that storm. The disciples hadn't learned that yet. Now the disciples know it. We're going to get through this storm because God is sovereign. If the whole ship falls apart, it doesn't matter. God's going to get me to Caesar one way or another. So the sovereignty of God is a pillow upon which Paul rests his head at night and gave him perfect peace. And so in verse 25, he says to them, he tries to infect them with this encouragement. He says, keep up your courage, men, for I believe that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. The boldness, the audacity of Paul to think they're going to listen to him now. Now, I, I, I don't know what Paul felt, but the normal human feeling is I'm offended that they rejected what God told me. The normal human feeling would have been just to stick with the I told you so moment and say, I told you this was going to happen, suckers, but we're going to get out of this because God's going to protect us, but not you. You're doomed. No, but he doesn't say that. He says the ship is doomed. It's over, people. But you can be saved. But to be saved, you must remain in the ship. And if you do not remain in the ship, then everyone's going to be lost. Notice that Julius believes him now. That's a big turning point in Julius's personal conversion to Christ. Now he believes what Paul says. He goes over with that sword. Remember, he's the guy with the sword. He's the one that makes the final decision. The sailors are all getting ready to get in the boat. He says, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're going out to set some anchors out. But they're not. Because it begins with um, the uh, last-dish efforts, then the panic, then there's the darkness and confusion. Well, the fourth step of what we see, the fourth stage of what we see with, with the world is then they begin to bail out and just leave everybody else. Everybody begins to bail out. And Julius finds out that they're getting in those boats, and they lie to him. It says that. And they pretend like they're going out to do sailor work. But Julius knows that they're lying, and so he takes a sword and cuts the ropes. Skiff goes in the water. Goodbye, Skiff. Sorry, guys. You're staying on this ship. I've cut off every opportunity for you to bail out. Why? Because Paul told me that his God told him we have to stay in this ship. Look at, at uh, verse 33 now. It says, until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have been constantly watching and going uh, without eating. So two weeks without eating, having taken nothing. I mean, they have not eaten anything in two weeks. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food, for this is not uh, for this is for your preservation, for not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. So he knows that God's going to save their life, but they're going to kill themselves if they don't eat. Just think about that. He says, you need to eat food. Remember when Jesus uh, healed Jairus' daughter, and she, was, she ra raised up from the dead. Well, that didn't change the fact she needed to eat. And the first thing Jesus says is, make that girl some food. She's going to be really hungry. She's been dead for a while. And she needs to eat food. You know, the, the natural and the supernatural, they work together. And so he says, you guys need to eat and prepare to be saved. Because you're going to be saved. So prepare for salvation to come and start eating. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food. For this is for your preservation. For not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. Does that remind you of anything? Jesus' last supper, yeah? The bread and the fish, the loaves and the fish that Jesus breaks and blesses them and passes them out to everybody. Where did Paul get this bread? Well, we've already been told in the story. At the very beginning, their first port of call, Julius favored him and let him get off the boat and go see his Christian friends in Sidon. And it says that they ministered to him. They gave him food. Well, Paul's been holding on to that food. Now again, what would be your natural reaction? I've got bread. They don't. So I'm just going to hide away here and snack on my bread. I mean, I don't know how long this thing is going on. They can all starve to death. I ain't going to share anything with anybody. 
This is a situation when you just don't tithe. This is a situation when you just can't give. You can't share. It's every man for himself. But Paul doesn't do that because he's a man of faith and a man of God. And he says, I want to share with you what I have. And he breaks the bread that he has and gives it to him. So we see on the one hand that they want to bail out on Paul, but Paul won't bail out on them. Paul's been praying for them. Paul's been living by faith. Paul's sharing his food by faith. And he's firmly standing on the word of God, what God has spoken to them. So he says, having said that, it says, having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all. And he broke it and began to eat. And all of them were encouraged. So they're not eating yet at first. They're kind of looking, and Paul's like, it's pretty good. He's already eaten, and they're like, okay, yeah. And then you can just imagine how the atmosphere changes. I mean, you know how hospitality and good food changes an atmosphere. You know how infectious joy and peace and hospitality are. That's why the scripture says, do not forget the sacrifices of hospitality. Why God says that God would send to you angels unaware, and you need to be hospitable to him. And amongst all the disgusting sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, one of them that's mentioned is they were not hospitable to the angels God sent them. Hospitality carries the power of God to infect people with faith, to change the whole atmosphere. You know how it feels, because you could think of this in your life, when there's somebody that you don't really like that much, you don't really trust them that much, you don't really, because you just don't know them. And they do something that's so hospitable and so giving, it just melts your heart. And you realize, man, I was completely wrong about that person. I just didn't really understand them. That's the power of hospitality. So Paul begins to eat, they begin to eat, and it says all of them were encouraged. There's no outward reason for them to be encouraged. Do you understand? The storm is still raging. They don't even have any tackle on the ship anymore. They threw the steering wheel out the window. You know what I'm saying? There's nothing they can do against this storm. There's no outward, earthly, fleshly reason for them to rejoice. But suddenly they find themselves encouraged. They find themselves laughing. They find themselves with joy in their hearts. They probably feel guilty about it. And then they get to that point, you know that point where you think, ain't nothing I can do about it anyway. Why not rejoice? And they just get joy in their heart because they're with Paul. It says they themselves also took food. And all of us in the ship, listen to this, were 276 souls. And when they had eaten enough, they began to lighten. Wait a minute, 276 people, soldiers, sailors, who had not eaten for two weeks, they got enough food to eat off of what Paul gave them? Something's messed up about this. It's not what it seems when you first read this. This is the same miracle that God did with the loaves and the fishes. It multiplies to them. There's no way Paul had enough food with him for that. But they took the bread. Whether they ate less and got full, or the bread multiplied, I don't know. But something miraculously happened. Miraculous happened. The kind of miracles that happen when we walk in faith. Encouragement took over their soul, and they began to be filled in their bodies. And then their, their strength returned to them. And when the strength returns, the mind returns. You know when you don't sleep right and you don't eat right, you make really bad and dangerous decisions. And they get their strength back. And it says 276 persons. And when they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. This is really cool. I'll talk about it in a minute. When day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind, they were heading for the beach." But striking a reef where two seas met, met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. This is really interesting. 276 men on board, they finally begin to listen to the encouragement that flows from Paul because he shares with them. 
Paul shares this bread with them. God multiplies it to them. There's such an encouragement that comes upon them that they begin to have hope again. When they throw the wheat overboard, that's not a sign of despair. That's a sign of we know everything's going to be okay because food is the last thing you throw overboard. That should have been, if they trusted God, the first thing they threw overboard because you know how heavy bags of flour are. I mean, this is, this is not wheat they just brought in from the field. The word means bread. They threw their bread overboard. They already ate Paul's bread, so they're full. So they threw all their bread over, <laughs> overboard because they know we're going to be saved. And when we're saved, that means God's going to provide for us. He just did provide for us, and God's going to provide for us. So faith begins to rise in their heart, and they make a decision that we're going to run this ship on ground. We're going to destroy the ship. We're going to crash it into that bay. Why is that a step of faith? Because if you remember, Paul told them that the angel said this ship must land or be run aground on a certain island. So now they believe what Paul said, and instead of doing things that normal sailors do, they do something crazy because that's what God told them to do. And it turns out to be their salvation. So it crashes onto the island. Then look at verse 42. It says, um, the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners. Oops. First it was the sailors that mutinied and wanted to bail out. Now it's the soldiers. So the last step of what happens is they go from bailing out to all-out mutiny. Don't be surprised. At mutiny, civil war, unrest, I'm not saying we're going to have a civil war in America, but you understand what I'm saying? Those kinds of things happen in these situations. They go from the panic to the, to the darkness and the confusion. They try to bail out. That doesn't work. And so now they mutiny. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners. That would have meant Paul also, so that none of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that they were all brought safely to land. I love how this story ends. There's a mutiny, and the mutiny is averted. Had the mutiny happened, not only would Paul have been killed there, but every one of them would have died, because that's what God said. They must all stay on the ship, and they must all stay with Paul. Do you have the boldness and the audacity and the Holy Spirit to let people know that I am a servant of the Most High God? And if you stick with me, you're going to be okay, because God's going to get me through. If you'll stay with me and just stay in this ship and stay in this boat, you may not believe everything I'm preaching to you, but just trust me that God's going to get us through. Okay, And that's what Paul keeps saying and fighting for. He's not fighting for these people to come and bow down and repeat the sinner's prayer. He's not fighting for them to all get baptized. He's not fighting for them to all get filled with the Holy Spirit and speak in other tongues. He's not fighting for them to become members of his church and you know, say you're the great Apostle Paul. I mean, that, all those things are going to happen eventually, but right now he's fighting for them just to have enough faith to give a cup of cold water to say yes to Jesus, to stay in the ship. And there's one person among them who has already given his heart to the Lord, and that is Julius. Now we see that Julius follows his heart and listens to the Holy Spirit. So let me point something out to you. Notice that Julius's name is brought up in this story. He's not really an important person in the grand scheme of things. There was a guy named Lysias, if you remember. Julius is the commander of a hundred men. Lysias is the commander of a thousand men. Okay? It's, you know, the fact that Lysias' name is in the story, he's a very famous person in those times. You know, Felix is famous. Festus is famous. Agrippa is super famous. I mean, these are names that everybody knew. Why is Julius' name even mentioned in this story? He's nowhere before. He's nowhere after. Well, when Luke does things like this, it's a little sign by the Holy Spirit that when he's writing this story, when you first read the book of Acts, you know who Julius is, okay? Why do you know who he is? Because Julius became a Christian. 
Julius, oh yeah, we know Brother Julius. That story's about him. And then they're going up to him after, hey, Julius, we were, they were just reading, the, did that really? Well, yeah, I guess the Holy Spirit wanted Luke to write that, but yeah, that all happened just the way it's written there. You know, they knew who Julius is. So this is a story of a man who becomes a follower of Christ. And why does he become a follower of Christ? Because he wants to treat Paul special. Because he wants to get Paul through safely so that Paul can fulfill the will of God. Because he listens to the Holy Spirit, he listens to his heart, and he walks in love towards Paul. He treats How he treats the church is what brings salvation. Paul could not cut off that, that, that boat, right? Paul doesn't have a sword, right? Paul cannot stop those soldiers from killing him. He doesn't have a shield or a sword or anything to defend himself with. But Julius can do it. And Julius gets saved. Everybody gets saved. Do you know that there are people in our community, there are people in our homes and in our lives, and you don't necessarily know who it is, okay? Sometimes you're thinking it's that person, but God knows, no, it's this person. There are people who are the key to a whole community coming to Christ. And Julius is that person that brings salvation to them all. Uh, it says that some of them couldn't swim, right? Well, I've got to tell you something. All Roman soldiers were trained to swim. So that's none of the soldier group. Every Roman soldier knows how to swim, and especially in an elite cohort like the Augustus co cohort. They know and they were trained to swim with their armor on, okay? They were trained to swim with their weapons. So there's not one single soldier here that's going to die. And they want to put the prisoners to death because they're afraid they're going to swim away and escape. I don't really get where they think they're going to escape to and why they think they won't be able to round them up because this is just a little dinky island. But people don't think logically when they're in panic mode, do they? So we're going to put the soul, if they thought logically, we don't want to put them to death, let them escape, we'll round them up. We've got to get them back to Rome anyway, or we're going to, it's going to be off with our heads for losing them. But they don't think logically. They mutiny, because mutiny is not logical. Rebellion is not logical. But they turn against Julius, but Julius has so much strength by faith, because he listens to Paul, he's able to stand down his entire cohort. Physically, he wouldn't have been able to do that, but he has the strength of courage, the strength of moral courage, and the leadership ability from God to be able to stand them down, and they listen to him. Panic strikes them, and they, they mutiny, and, and, but he's able to stop it because Julius believes God. Julius turns his heart to the Lord. If you remember, I said that Paul understood that the stakes are very low to stay in fair havens. But the risk is very high to leave. Now, but Julius goes with the high risk and they lose. You know, he, he rolls the dice on the high risk and he loses it all. Now he makes a different choice. The stakes of disobeying God, the stakes, obviously, of not listening to Paul, they are very, very high. And the risk of my soldiers turning against me is very low compared to that. You see, he sees things in a completely different way. What his soldiers think about him is not important to him anymore. What's important to him is what does Paul's God think about me? He has a change of heart. And he trusts in the God and the Christ that Paul preaches. He wants to get Paul safely through. Now, there's one little tiny detail in this story that I find really interesting. Apparently, Paul doesn't know how to swim, just so you know. Because some of them don't know how to swim, and Julius wants to get Paul safely through. I'm going to get you over there, Paul. Paul's like, thank you. But it's kind of an interesting detail. Because God may be throwing you into a situation where you don't know how to swim, and there's no way you can get through it. But you still just are at peace. Just be at peace. If his sovereignty is putting you in that situation, he's got a way to get you through. If you don't know how to swim, no biggie. Here comes a plank you can hold on to, or a big, strong Julius who's going to say, get on my back, and I'll take you over to the other side. And Paul's like, I'm fine. I'll take help from a Julius or from wherever it comes from, but I'm going to Rome. 
However I have to get there, I'm going to get through, and I'm going to go to Rome. And as a result, every single one of them are saved. Jesus said, many who are last shall be first. And many who are called, many are called, but very few are chosen. We've gone through these chapters. We've got one more chapter in the book of Acts. We've gone through these chapters, and we've seen the rich and the famous. We've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. We've seen Felix and Drusilla, and neither one of them got saved. They had every opportunity, and neither one of them got saved. We've seen Festus, the good guy, and the good guy doesn't get saved. We've seen the really ugly Agrippa and Bernice, and they don't get saved. Lysias doesn't get saved. It's not the rich and famous that got saved that day. But Julius, finally Paul finds somebody that gets saved. Julius. And Julius changes everything because he trusts God, and God brings them through. Many are called, but few are chosen. And the one who's last, he will just end up being the first. And the one who's first ends up being the last. And so they get through. That's we hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind wrong. you that if you want Paul to continue to receiving updates on new sermons, you subscribe to our podcast. We're going to get all that. If you want more information uh, on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website we at yourintimbeamfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBS podcast. I want to have the worship team come up on up here.